Hello and welcome to ESM Squared, the podcast for experienced social media marketers. I'm Emily, your host and long-term member of the team here at Iconosquare. Iconosquare is one of the leading analytics and management tools for Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and newly TikTok. We're proud to work with some of the biggest agencies in the world as well as huge brands such as Patagonia, Sephora, Versace and even NASA. If you're new to Icona Square or just haven't got around to checking out our tools before, you can start with the basics by heading over to audit.iconasquare.com and getting a free audit of your Instagram and Facebook accounts to find out once and for all where you're flying high and where you're falling flat. These audits are extremely helpful when it comes to identifying problem areas and efficiently improving your social media strategy. If you're a regular listener of ESM Squared, you'll know that we have two types of episode. The interviews with social media experts, where professionals share with me and all of you their experiences working with social media, as well as their internal strategies, tips, tricks, and more. And we also have tutorial episodes in which I talk all by myself about a particular topic, which can often be a burning question for social media marketers like you and help guide you into making strong decisions for your social strategy. This episode is an interview and I was delighted to interview Aaron Bisman, Vice President of the Sesame Workshop in charge of audience development. Aaron is extremely articulate when it comes to the values and mission behind the global nonprofit that is Sesame Street. There's a ton of inspiration to be taken from the way that Sesame Street uses social media as a means of communication with their loyal community. I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating once you're done listening. And don't forget, you can try Lycona Square for free for a whole two weeks and you don't need to share any credit card information to get started. Contact me directly for any questions or feedback via emily at iconosquare.com. Aaron, you are the Vice President of the Sesame Workshop in charge of audience development. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to have this conversation. Cool. Let's get straight into some general questions. So Sesame Street is known all over the world, if I'm not mistaken, but just for the sake of the podcast, could you give me a bit of history about the charity itself and how it came to be so iconic? Sure. So Sesame Street is the longest running children's program in the United States. And, you know, core to who we are is, you know, experimental and constantly innovating. So originally, the idea came about in the late 1960s, and this was during the civil rights movement in the U.S. and during President Johnson's war on poverty. And there was a new wave of research that was showing just how far children living in poverty were falling behind uh, in terms of education. And so against this backdrop, a young TV producer and an educational psychologist, this is Joan Gans Cooney and Lloyd Morissette, our founders, they had this simple but really revolutionary idea to see if television could be used to teach and to really help level the playing field for low-income families so that all children could arrive to school ready to learn. And so, you know, this is the moment when television adoption is exploding. So most U.S. homes at this point have a TV set, uh, but the programming is pretty junky. Uh, It was famously dubbed a vast wasteland. And Lloyd in particular tells a story of hearing kids going around singing jingles from beer commercials that they had seen on TV, right? So, so he and Joan started to wonder, like, if kids could learn beer, beer jingles, right, why couldn't they learn things like letters and numbers from TV as well? And so they took this idea to a couple of funders, the Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Education, and they provided the needed funds uh, for launch. And from the get-go, right, this was not just uh, 
television creators, but they were researchers, educators, then of course, writers and producers. Uh, soon after that, they brought in Jim Henson and his Muppet creations and you know, created the show that we all know and love today. So from the outset, we were founded as a nonprofit. And today we are a global nonprofit with a mission to help kids everywhere grow, grow smarter, stronger, and kinder, right? We think about smarter by teaching basic literacy and numeracy, stronger meaning fostering physical and mental health and resilience, and kinder by modeling inclusion and mutual respect. So we are present in 150 countries and, you know, and really focused on serving the world's most vulnerable children. Uh, in many countries, we have co-productions where we have local partners. Um, and everywhere we are in the world, we look to tailor the show and our efforts to reflect the lives of, of local children and the unique challenges that they face. So in South Africa, that meant addressing HIV and AIDS, um, girls' education in India, or conflict and displacement uh, in the Middle East. And at the heart of all of this is something we really believe in, which is the power of early childhood education to change lives. So along with the TV show, we create all kinds of educational resources. We do, we do trainings for educators and, and different types of providers. Um, and, and we also seek out partnerships when we know we can't do this work alone. So yeah, we are really proud of, of what we've grown into over 52 years. Um, and, you know, and looking forward, it's about continued innovation, um, continued experimentation, new shows, new work in new places. It's a, it's a really exciting time to be involved in this work. What a wonderful story from the ground up and beyond. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so many and so many more stories to be told. I will say there's a great documentary soon to be available worldwide called Street Gang. Um, and it really tells the story of, of our founding. And it's, it's, um, it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun, even, even working here, learning new things through, ha through having other storytellers, um, you know, helping us rediscover and, and relearn e even more about our founding. Great. When's that going to be available? Can you not say? Uh, it, it's actually a rolling release. So it has different release dates around the world, but it'll be available in the UK uh, in late January and, and elsewhere from there. Great. Okay, we'll be sure to keep an eye out for that. Um, let's just come back to the more operational inside of Sesame, how it works. Uh, what is your personal role in the team today? Has it evolved? Where, where are you today? Sure. So our entire marketing department um, has been evolving over the past few years. We have a new chief marketing officer, Samantha Malton, and she joined a little less than three years ago. And so... She has done a lot um, and has a, a really clear vision of the work ahead of us um, as a, for a global company um, to really think about how we how we unify our brand, how we elevate our nonprofit status um, and the needs that that we meet. Um, and part of that was was rethinking our direct to audience um, strategy. And so she created a new role here, which is the role that I that I came into about a year and a half ago as VP of audience development. So we've been using social media for almost 10 years. I'm not sure if that makes the company pioneering, but it certainly was was early days for thinking about fictional characters and kids television being on social. So we've been in that space, but I came in um, to really uh, bring a holistic approach to all the ways that we directly speak to consumers. So much of our work is through partnerships, right? We distributed by PBS now in the US, 
now by PBS and HBO Max through Warner Media. Uh, again, we said different partners all over the world, which meant we we would make a show and make some marketing assets, and they would be handled by those partners. Um, but of course, the world today has changed, and every content creator is expected to build their own relationships um, for all kinds of reasons. In in our case, this really helps us further our our educational and and you know nonprofit objectives. Not just it's not only about viewership, although that's important. And so, um, it's it's all the more important that we develop and further these channels. So for us, it's not just social, that's email marketing, thinking about web strategy and you know what our web presence is and all these places. And so uh, I work um, sort of across those, those areas to really um, develop and optimize each channel, um, but also to ensure that we're always thinking about the interplay between them. Uh, and so some of this comes back to like a traditional marketing funnel and I'm often the guy, so I have, my role is cross-functional and often I'm, I'm in the meetings just asking the questions of, you know, how do these pieces connect? Which audience is this for? Which step in the funnel, right? Is this tactic or asset intended for? Do they all connect? You know, is there a through line and a through logic through, through all those pieces? Separately, I, I'm also involved in a really interesting project here um, that, we refer to as our data infrastructure project. So Sesame is invested in building a data lake where we're putting all of our owned uh, and available third-party data sources so that we can begin to visualize them, not just individually, but but connected to one another. And so when it comes to social, I've always joked I did poor man's data science, um, really comp- you know, the most complicated Excel sheets I could manage, pulling in from every possible source to have those kinds of calculations now now done for us um, really you know helps us move like leaps and bounds forward in in the real data science that, that we can tackle and the goal there of course is just to do this work better more efficiently um, and to get to the insights um, much faster than than we could otherwise so that's a really um, exciting thing for us internally um, that we expect to have external um, value um, you know, over time. Um, but but short term, it's already been incredibly powerful for us and just an exciting part of the work we do day to day internally. Wow, that's impressive. I uh, I hear that you're obviously not just about the social media, that there are lots of different uh, bricks that come to create your wall, which is your marketing strategy over there at Sesame. Uh, obviously, I want to focus uh, mainly on social media. That's what the podcast is about, although I'm sure I could ask you a thousand questions. Um, what would you say are the main goals of Sesame on social media at the moment? Um, and, and how good are you at achieving your goals? Sure. So we, we have a lot of accounts. I have trouble keeping track. I believe we're at 22 right now. So what? yeah, so because we have um, Sesame Street, the show, right? Uh, on and, and Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are our real focused uh, social channels. So Sesame Street has three. Sesame Workshop, the overarching organization, has three. Um, We recently relaunched um, a set of channels called Sesame Studios um, because we actually have a few shows that we produce that are not Sesame Street. Um, Some are spinoffs like the Not Too Late Show with Elmo and others are standalone IP, um, Helpsters and Ghostwriter on on Apple TV, for instance, Esme and Roy on, on HBO Max and Cartoonito. So Sesame Studios becomes our place to uh, promote and and build relationships with fans or future fans of those shows, 
Okay, so that's so that's nine. And then we have our core characters, and they are all on Facebook and Twitter. Elmo's on Instagram. Char- other characters will join him on Instagram. So a lot of background, but you know, in summary, we have a lot of channels. So our different channels do have different goals. We we think about the organizational channels and the character channels. And the truth is that the character channels are much harder, right? Speaking in these characters' voices takes quite a bit of time to learn to do. There's how to do it correctly. And there's also then how to do it well. Um, I I think we're doing, I think we've gotten correct. I mean, again, I've been here a year and a half. Our social media director has been here only six months. Um, uh, We have a coordinator who's actually been here longer than both of us and really guides, helps us guide a lot of this. Um, But so I, I think that we understand how to speak in the characters' voices. I think we continue to refine how to do it really, really well. And so that that piece is slower. Um, our characters do not tweet very often. And when they do, we're looking for maximum impact, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. Um, and so we focus day to day right now really on our institutional channels. And I would say, if I had to grade us, I, I would say in all honesty, right, it, it changes month to month. Um, in general, I think we're doing pretty well. I think we have a good understanding of what we want to do. Um, and that is first and foremost, like we're there to entertain in order to educate, right? So there's there's a lot of layered goals, um, but but ultimately we're looking to make impact, to make mission impact, which means supporting revenue goals and supporting you know content consumption and 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 in some cases really specific um, campaigns and, and projects. For instance, around uh, all through COVID. Um, we've created a number of resources for for parents and caregivers to support them with kids while in lockdown, et cetera. Um, so on the macro goals, we feel pretty good, but some of the macro goals will it's a it's a long term it's a long haul, right? And understanding the the direct impact will will take some time. Um, Short term, also like we you know we've had an increase in online donations. Um, you know, we're always we're looking for increases in clicks to our websites. Some conversions are harder to track than others, um, but we also look we also look at social chatter, right? There's what we put on social, and there's what everyone else talks about uh, about us. And so we're measuring, of course, all of our, with our own metrics. But we're also curious to see how we influence what what others talk about, um, and and then can can see that impact, um, you know, in a number of other indirect ways as well you know, uh, press articles, politicians talking about us, others, et cetera. So we, the truth is we look at a wide variety of metrics, but the starting point on each of our channels for us is engagement. Um, globally, we look at, you know, depending on our, we have different channels in different stages. We also have, uh, I think over, over 10, uh, of our productions internationally also have social presences. So Takalani Sesame in South Africa, Achlan Simsim in, in the Middle East, um, Shesham Strauch. I, 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 my German pronunciation is terrible. We probably shouldn't use that, but we have uh, German and Belgium accounts. Um, and, and so those accounts are in different phases, right? Some of them are newer. And so we, we, we're in the process right now of dividing our goals by channel to, to really ask the question, like, is it a growth phase or an engagement phase? If it's in a growth phase, we are primarily looking at followership and reach. If it's in an engagement phase, we're not just looking at, the, at engagements, but the engagement rate, engagements per post, um, wanting to be as intentional as possible um, and understanding that, at least for us, we always want to reach more people, 
but you know having those likes or followers is is only but so meaningful and only but so valuable anymore. So we want to get the channels as big as we think is possible and reasonable, and then really focus from there on connecting with the individuals who have made those likes. Um, and so engagement is really where it's at for us. For a lot of companies, engagement is the big one. Um, what kind of content is it that you are focusing on creating? Like, And, and who designs it? Who creates the actual content? I guess you're in charge of a lot of the... Of, of the of the captions like the textual elements are you or I'm not sure yeah so the so the starting point is that we've developed uh, a series of content verticals right and it, it's it's fluid but thinking about you know content that is just evergreen fun stuff for fans uh, versus calls to action right versus birthdays holidays and cultural events right we have all we have I think over 10 verticals the the main point of those verticals is to ensure that the channels don't feel stale, right? That that when we're programming, we're really careful to to mix up those types of content. So from there, the social team has to really think about how to flesh those things out. We we do have um, certain verticals where we have different teams providing content to us. Um, our Sesame Street in Communities is our domestic social impact team. They create a lot of these resources. They often create social graphics or social content to support um, and to go along with the content they're already creating. So that gets delivered to us um, for the shows themselves, right? They have promos that are made and key art. So there's a fair amount that's made for us. Um, not always the copy sometimes, but certainly the the visuals and the video. And but I would say that the vast majority of the content we put up, we are curating from the incredible archive, you know, that we have of 52 years of shows and resources. Um, the vast majority of the written content is is written by my team, not by me. I do not take credit for any of that. Um, but they're doing a lot of the writing. And often it's a very collaborative process. Um, as nonprofits go, at least in my personal experience, like we're we're not a tiny place and we have a lot of teams, just like at the beginning, right? There's researchers and educators and TV writers. Um, but for social, it, it really is helpful because I really believe that when you have uh, people with different experiences and outlooks, right, all working together for a common goal, you, you actually get to the best work. It's not the fastest process, but it it does get you uh, often to the most impactful product. Um, so it is very collaborative. Uh, we write we write a lot. We rely a lot on our archive, and then we we do have um, creatives. We have a dedicated designer in our brand creative team who is creating graphics and assets for social. Uh, hard for me to break it down by by percentage, but um, it's it's not a it's not insignificant how much content is made uniquely. Uh, for social. And then we take all that, we repackage it and make it available to our international team so that they can um, utilize it on their social channels if they want to as well. Brilliant. I completely agree with what you say about how the the copy needs to be a, a collaborative effort. It needs to, in order for it to really be impactful. Um, I feel that, I feel that every day <laughs> in my work. So I completely hear you on that. Um, we didn't talk about um, your audience. Uh, so you're obviously like in charge of audience development, but who is your actual ideal target audience? Uh, and how do you go about reaching them? I'm guessing it's not the kids themselves for the most part. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's this is something really unique, particularly about being um, a 52-year-old brand that continues to have relevance today and is still on air. So I feel lucky part related to our data infrastructure work and the birth of audience development here was a major research project done 
on audience segmentation. And, um, you know, working both with our internal researchers and an outside agency called Known, um, we established uh, our total addressable market and identified them in six distinct segments, right? Uh, four of which we feel are a focus. Uh, and we really use that. Th that is domestic. We, we have a lot to learn still about our international audiences. Um, but we found quickly, I'm so glad I started uh, in this role before Facebook shut down their Facebook audience insights because I have. Uh, it was very, very valuable, that tool for me. Um, and we saw alignment to the audience segments as identified externally to um, to followers across our social channels with distinct segments on distinct channels. So um, we think uh, we have two parent segments that we think about, right? Just um, different attitudinal um, makeups of parents of current or recent uh, Sesame viewers, right? Then we have adult fans. Um, and this is, you know, it's pretty evident uh, to us uh, on social and elsewhere. And, and we love having such excited and passionate um, adults, you know, in, in the lives of this brand. I really think of them as our brand ambassadors and influencers. They really help us, you know, get messaging out. They also give us all kinds of feedback, sometimes teaching us things about our own show and history that, that we may have lost track of. Um, and then, you know, because we're a nonprofit, like we do have to raise money to to achieve our goals. Um, you know, our distribution deals do not uh, make give provide enough funds to do all of the important work we need to do. And so, thinking about our donors, um, a core segment of donors as one of those four segments uh, is also really important for us. So, kids absolutely are a segment. At at Sesame, we treat we do not treat YouTube as a social platform, but rather as a distribution platform. And so YouTube lives with the teams that are, that are also programming um, for our for our channels and other, and uh, SVOD or other streaming services, et cetera. Um, and they think very much about pr directly serving children. But the, you know, in, in, in the marketing side, we're very careful that we're not marketing directly to kids. We're speaking to their parents and the loved ones um, around them. And you know, fans and people who just feel nostalgia for the brand. So um, we're balancing 22 channels for audience segments. Um, but as I said, what we found early on was that certain channels already spoke pretty naturally, had built natural audiences with certain segments. Um, and we keep that in mind when we look to launch new channels or grow existing channels um, to ensure that there is you know, sort of proper alignment and that our expectations align with reality. And, and of course, if not, we, we don't force the audience segment, we, we shift strategy and, and iterate from there. Great. And so you have spoken about the platforms that you put most of your focus on, but um, are those all of the platforms that you're present on? Do you have other platforms which are more in the shadows, which you're still in the process of building up? Have you thought about the newer platforms, TikTok, et cetera? How do you feel about those? Yeah, so they those are the platforms we're active on. Um, we have platforms that live, I I would say, in between social and other spaces. Like we're on LinkedIn. Our you know our HR team does update that regularly, and we are involved um, with some of that content. So again, I don't think of it as core social. Um, we have historically we have been on other platforms, but they're really dormant at this point. And we're always keeping tabs on new platforms. You know, with new platforms, there's a lot of questions. Um, for us to address, like, are our core audiences on them? Um, I've I've only worked in nonprofit media and arts and culture throughout my whole career. And so 
I really have a clear approach to new platforms, which is that especially as nonprofits where you know we we are entrusted with with money from the public that we have to be my, what it means to be experimental is different than say a startup or other kinds of companies and so our job is not to be groundbreaking it is to be a few steps ahead of our peers and competitors right and so in that way when we look at these platforms do we need to did we need to be on TikTok a year ago i'm not sure do we need to be on TikTok now? It's feeling more and more likely. However, when you look at like other children's media brands, like some are there, some are not yet. So it, I would say TikTok is an is an active evaluation. We're very aware that if we go onto TikTok, the social strategy we operate today on on these other platforms won't work, and we would basically have to build an entirely new strategy with new content needs. And so it's something we're exploring. I don't think you'll see us on Snapchat, um, and I, you know, and and frankly, there's new platforms we're always learning about and considering. Message boards are not a place, in my in my knowledge, we have not been active there previously. But like, will we need to be on Discord in a few years? I, I don't know the answer, but you know, I would say so. You know, TikTok is maybe the most obvious, but it's still in that cadre of newer platforms with younger audiences where. We're exploring, we're keeping tabs on them, we're considering the implications. Um, for now, I would say we are happy and very busy on the three platforms we're on. I think that's a very meaningful and and considerate way of looking at it when you obviously like it I tend to forget that yeah, you're a nonprofit. You're you're you haven't just raised funds from from a, from an investor, you know, it's from uh, it's from the members of the public. So it's a very, I think it's very meaningful the way that you look at it. Yeah, I, it 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 keeps us honest, right? It uh it really keeps us honest, and and you know, as amazing as this organization is, like we you know we 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 think about budgets and like we we just we don't want to be wasteful, right? We want to be confident, and um, it, it it is it's just an it's an important lens. That that we look that you know the social team looks at its work through just like just like so many others. Much respect. Can you tell me like what a perfect post is for Sesame Street? Like, do you like to try out loads of different formats or? Yeah, I can. Um, well, again, so I think we have a few, right? I, I will say that numeric at this point on on Ses- let's take Sesame Street for instance. We know the numbers, so we know what we consider success. Right, you know, and it's we have ranges for reach. At least it's funny, uh, engage. Even though we're focused on engagement, we still have to base some of this, at least initially, on reach, just because it's the fastest metric to to get tabs on. Um, so there's a few different. I would say there's a few different types of posts, but I will take as an example something we did in uh, November. Sorry, something we did in November, uh, and I take zero credit for this. All credit goes to Nate. Nate. All credit goes to Nate Nagy and Christina Vitas, um, my amazing social team. Um, and it was World Mental Health Day. And this is the day we've marked primarily on, on our Sesame Workshop channels. They brought it onto Sesame Street, utilizing some existing resources from our Sesame Street and Communities team. So the, the asset they used um, were about mental health, but had been posted in other contexts. And they wrote some new copy, bringing it into World Mental Health Day and posting them on Sesame Street's channels. And 
the reach was incredible. Um, we reached 2.7 million people across platforms just with this. I, I mean, I, I believe that's across three posts, um, you know, one on each platform. Uh, and the engagement was great, including the responses we saw. And so to us, why, why is that so successful? You know, the other form of success is like acute. I mean, we put Cookie Monster in a tutu. Um, and it was like, you know, Monday mood or something. And like that also did really well. And it's not insignificant to put, you know, where for at least for some people who might see Cookie gendered and to see him in a tutu, like that, that is that inclusivity is not insignificant. It's still primarily a fun light post, right? So seeing that reach 200 or 400,000 people is also success. Um, but for us, that sort of has to be our bread and butter. Like we need to be able to churn that out with with some predictability. Um, but so when we come to something that's a little more serious in nature, and we can use our furry, lovable characters, right, to speak to adults, whether from a whether they connect nostalgically uh, or actively because their kids are involved or otherwise, right, and we can talk to them about a serious topic that might impact them and or the children in their lives, and give them a, a quick tip. Um, or help or just reassurance like that is that is the work that we are really most proud of um one other example um i think i have to give um is uh you know we recent big bird recently tweeted that he got the covid19 vaccine right that tweet was a direct lift or that's not true that tweet was almost a direct lift from a script uh, from a show, uh, we did a we do town halls with CNN uh, on serious topics that we feel, um, you know, are, again, are, are are furry and lovable characters. Yeah, your Sesame Street friends could really help explain both to children and their parents in a in a co viewing environment. In December, we did a CNN town hall, the uh, the ABCs of COVID nineteen vaccines. So within the script and on on and on that special, Big Bird got his vaccine. We took that copy edited it just slightly and had Big Bird tweet it, right? Our other characters also tweeted from the special, um, but Big Bird was the only character to get the vaccine during the special and to say, I just got the vaccine. My arms, my wing is a little sore, um, but I'm so glad that I, I have this protection for myself and my family and, and those around me. Um, and Ted Cruz, Senator from Texas, um, who enjoys stirring pots, um, quote tweeted us uh, quote tweeted big bird something about now they're trying to brainwash five-year-olds and this created a big brouhaha um so th this follows a, a certain trajectory that we've seen before um when a politician gets involved um and maybe their reasoning is or their logic maybe doesn't hold for a lot of people um and then others right this gets into social listening they're not just retweeting us and liking Big Bird's tweet, although they did that, the, the Big Bird's tweet ultimately had 35 million impressions, um, but they also start talking about themselves. And so we, you know, that trajectory um, escalates to late night talk show hosts, you know, joke, talking about this and joking. And yes, they're talking about Ted Cruz going after a, a six and a half year old, eight foot yellow bird. Um, but it's, but People are also coming back to that tweet, sharing our tweet, sharing with us photos of their kids getting their their vaccines, you know, and telling us how this has been helpful to them. Um, then President Biden responds, right, and then it becomes the cold open on Saturday Night Live. Um, so again, 
did we plan did what was our goal when we made that tweet to get on Saturday Night Live? Absolutely not. Did we understand the power of a character tweeting and tweeting about an entop- a topic this important and sort of where it could go? We certainly understood most of that trajectory. Um and and it's amazing to see how that kind of thing travels. Um so, you know, what our strategy is to set up for the most success possible, to understand what's possible, and to know when it is important to re-engage, to escalate, to de-escalate. Um, and so I think for me, those two examples um, really speak to uh, what success looks like for us today. Incredible that you made, that you had that buzz, right? It was wild and um, really rewarding to see. Uh, I will say that the bet, you know, the the impetus for it was looking at the data. So we have been planning, we've been thinking about how to make our characters' voices more active, you know, on Twitter and social generally. As I said at the beginning, like it's hard to write in um in a Muppet's voice correctly. And you know, each character has a unique voice. It's not like Elmo, Cookie Monster, Big Bird, Oscar, Grover, Burton Ernie, Abby. They don't they don't speak the same way. They don't talk about the same things. They don't have the same personalities. And so it takes time. And we so we were we were in a planning phase to make each of those accounts more active. And when we went back and looked at the previous year's data, which we you know every twice a year we do massive analyses to see to, to go beyond what we're looking at on a daily and monthly basis. And what we noticed was that across eight character accounts on Twitter in the previous year, we had tweeted a total of like seventy times, but had reached I think with over three or four million uh, people reached total. And what that told us was that we might want consistency, right? We might want them to have 300, you know, across eight accounts. We might want them each tweeting a couple times a week, but it wasn't necessary to make impact. And with that awareness, when this CNN town hall came up, right, that led me to to say to our team, like, let we have to bring these characters' voices in. It's an important topic. The characters are in the special. Let's do that. Had we not done that, that look back and that data analysis, we would have thought that our the plans we were making were the right ones. Characters, there's no point in tweeting once if you're not going to tweet, you know, consistently from there. And so I just think in, in the context of this conversation, I thought that was something um, hopefully, you know, useful for, for listeners to know, uh, at least about our strategy, which is just, just how agile we try to be um, and also transparent. So we talk a lot about what our plans are, what we hope for, what our benchmarks are. But when things don't work or we have a new uh, insight, we also talk about that. We want to share our process and and the outcomes. I really find that um, with more transparency, right? Transparency, calculated risk, um, right? And of course, results. Uh, you, that's how you build trust, not just with your your boss or supervisors or leadership, but also you know with peers and and others in the organization. And so that's been important to me, you know, really everywhere I've been, and continue that here, and really trying to bring that into my team. That you know, sharing is is better than we don't hide anything, and and we're not afraid of of things that that don't work, right? We certainly don't want to see things falling flat. We don't want to see you know numbers dipping. Um, which is why we look daily, weekly, monthly, and not only biannually. Um, but um, we don't only share the successes, right? We're we're pretty we're pretty forward about here's something we we thought would land and it didn't. Here's what we've learned about it. Here's here's the shifts we're making as a result. And we find that 
you know, in in the trust that you build there, in the moments when we really do want to go somewhere new, try something, try something new, um, it's a little easier um, because of the trust that's been built to say like, you know, there could be more space to to make some some new experiment, some some new attempt, um, because you, you know internally you know we're not going to hide the results. If it doesn't work, we'll tell you and we'll move on. But if it does work, we're going to celebrate that and and build off of that as well. So you're seeing it as a as a failure, as something which didn't work out the way that you wanted. But is there such thing as bad press? I mean, oh well, first of all, I would say I don't I don't think did I use the word failure? I no, don't you think didn't. No, right, you didn't. right. No, I'm not into failure. So I mean, you know. It personally, you know, in my, my in my personal backstory, like I I I founded and ran a, a music and media nonprofit for ten years, and and ultimately when I closed it, I had ten nine employees. We were by coast. It was it was something. I was very proud of it. We made a lot of impact in that space. And when we closed, right, my lens was never failure. Right, we failed to raise money in that moment. Certainly. Um, but my lens was not failure then. And I've certainly carried that with me. Like, no, if something doesn't w- perform the way we want, right? It didn't perform the way we wanted. You know, I think failure is when um, you don't succeed at something, you don't acknowledge it, and you move on as if it didn't happen and, and try to pretend. Like, to me, that's failure. Um, and I find that totally unacceptable in myself and 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 in the work I do. Um so, you know, I think talking about bad press, good press, I think that's a different matter. Like if I think just about social, right? If my goal is engagement, right? So I, I have a numeric, I have a, I have a numeric goal per post per month that I want to hit, right? I also have an, engage, an engagement rate target per platform. And things that underperform those things, under again, it's not a failure, it's an underperformance. And then there's overperformance. I'm actually, personally, what I want is consistency. I love having a great viral moment, but- I, I want intentionality in the, to me, to me, that is, I won't say the ultimate, but that is like advanced strategy when you're firing on all cylinders. And now you can say, right, I'm going to make this post and I can predict it's going to get within this range of reach and, and approximately, you know, this many engagements at this engagement rate. Right. And if I'm wrong, I want to understand how I, how I miss that iterate and, and predict again. Um, none of this has to do with with you know press i i love working with my peers in the comms team uh, strategizing together thinking together but i will uh, leave any questions about press to them because it is not not my lane to talk about good good answer there's a bad pun in there somewhere about the covid post going viral i think <laughs> there I definitely think. is well yeah others others have made them and- <laughs> Um, I think we've been over the main questions. Um, are you okay to head on to the quickfire questions? Yeah, let's do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you four questions quite rapidly, and I'm looking for the first answer that comes into your head. Sure, no problem. Shoot. What takes up most of your time as a professional working on social media? So personally, it's a combination of strategy and data analysis. I spend a lot of time. We have a lot. Of, we we look at graphs. We we graph um, uh, our year. You know, for us, it's fiscal years um, separately on a on a, a horizontal calendar because you know December is always for us. December is always going to be better, say, than a July. We need to see, you know, how did we perform relative to last December? So um, I spend a lot of time looking at those graphs. Um, in an effort to understand, are we trending in the right directions? And if we're not, what's the cause? Um, and from there, I jump back into strategy 
you know, is the current strategy we have in place the right one? Um, from there, like, I, my, you know, our, our social team, uh, our mighty team of two currently, um, is really um, empowered to, to run those channels. So I certainly, I, I supervise, I overlook, I talk through things with them, but, but I, I live primarily in strategy and analysis day to day. Your three essential tools for social media marketing. Sure. I, I had trouble. I, the Tools is such a broad word. So I'm going to say four things. Um, curiosity, agility, constant content consumption. And I'm not trying to cheat here, but I really mean it. I kind of square. Um, and, and a couple other tools. So what I mean about, to me, curiosity is the most important thing. Um, I am a voracious consumer of content. Uh, some of it I like, some of it I just feel like I need to see and know. Um, but if you don't stay curious, you cannot be good at social. Um, and I think very frankly, many of us are in a moment like that right now um, where at least you know the, the last couple of months, Facebook algorithm seems to be making some interesting shifts. Um, and it's a moment of like, if you're not curious to understand what is happening to your channels and to the marketplace, um, the strategy you had in place you know, for however long in the past almost definitely is not going to perform for you right now or into the future. Um, and that's just, that's a, that's an immediate example. Um, but you can't be complacent. Agility, as we've been talking about, you got to be able to, to pivot very, very quickly. Um, and I lift up Iconosquare. And again, no, you did not ask me to do this, but I didn't. Um, I really I didn't. I, I think I told you I was going to anywhere. I don't know how I found Iconosquare many years ago. I've I've used it now in, in a couple of, of roles, but there are there are some things like having my Instagram stories available to me to be able to revisit metrics and actually see the stories that at least I don't find other places. Um, it's a unique tool for me, right? Beyond that, I would say generally, right? Like Having your, in, your, you know, of course, looking at, at our native social insights is incredibly, incredibly important and powerful. Um, so native social, na native social um, analytics. A and then I think for us, right, being able to monitor social conversations is also important. So we have another piece of software for that. That is n not necessary for every brand, every, every handle. Um, but at the, at the, scale and reach that our brand has, it is important for us to have that monitoring. So sorry, that wasn't so rapid. Um, but, but those, but those, you know, when I think of tools and I mean this honestly, like other than yours, there aren't specific tools. I think that I have to have, there are, it's more about the, those categories, but I, I just, I always come back to curiosity and agility as being more important than, than anything else in my arsenal. Um, as well as like, that's what I look for um, you know, in hiring for these kinds of roles, right? Of course, experience, but it's 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 a mindset. It's an approach that I think really makes the difference. Now I want to know your favorite accounts on social media, personally to you. Um, I'm having a really hard time personally with the Instagram algorithm because it thinks that all I care about is the MCU um, because, you know, I do like movies and I have a 13-year-old son who ask me all kinds of questions. Um, but I will say personally, um, two I'm really into right now. One is C, S-E-A, uh, oceanography. Anything that takes me under the ocean is uh, is a beautiful escape for me. Um, I I love snorkeling and, and any chance I get to be, it feels so otherworldly to me and I often need that escape. And one I just discovered a few weeks ago um, is called The Cheat Sheets. Uh, it's on Instagram. 
and it is uh it's all microsoft excel hacks and i guess i'm geeky that way um i i am self-taught in a lot of things um uh, or or taught by amazing mentors, but as opposed to school, like I went to school, but I don't have a master's degree. Um, you know, I think a lot like many people in social, you learn on the job. Um, the day I learned pivot tables was transformative. And so a, an account like the cheat sheets, it's not even that I'm using it so much, but just again, back to my curiosity, seeing how much more there is to learn. Um, so I have trouble coming up with one, one um, third account. Um, certainly most of my social feed, I'm sure like many others is, is friends, um, you know, and just keeping up, especially in these times, being able to keep up with, with their lives and what's going on with them. Um, but those are two that when I see them in my feed, I'm always happy and I stop and, you know, curious to see what they have going on. It's important to have accounts, which are nothing to do with your work, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and both, right? For me, it's been both directions. I want things that are totally unrelated and then finding ones that are actually very practical, uh, which I, frankly, I don't think I have enough of. Uh, I, I'm always looking for more. Um, but but having ha- having those extremes, uh, it also keeps my feet interesting. Absolutely. And finally, um, a piece of advice that you would give to other professional social media managers or professionals working with social media. Yeah, I think it's just... Um, my process and the the process I really believe in, which is to, you know, hypothesize, test that hypothesis, analyze it, iterate on it and repeat, right? This is a never ending process. And, and I, I do think that, that is the most important thing is it's never stop learning, right? Never stop testing. Never assume that what you did yesterday is going to work tomorrow. Um, that, that is the mindset. I think that, that really, uh, fundamentally makes for for winning social content and winning social account. Well, thank you for that advice. And thank you, Aaron, for all of the advice that you've given during this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thanks for all of the insights and for everything that you've shared with us today. Absolute pleasure. Emily, thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Really enjoyed talking with you. And that's all for today's episode. Don't forget you can check out our other tutorials and interviews with experienced social media marketers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. Please don't hesitate to give this episode a rating. And for all questions and comments, or to inquire about being interviewed on ESM Squared, contact me directly via emily at iconosquared.com.